It may be because the, uh, the child is looking out the window or talking or being just generally disruptive, uh, you know, asleep or just bored. You just can't teach that child anything. We can say the same thing about God, but not in such a derogatory manner. You cannot teach God anything because God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. If God could just learn one thing, that would mean that he's not infinite, that he doesn't know all things. There's something that he lacks. Well, in Psalm 139, the first six verses deal with God's omniscience. And then the last verses, 7 through 10, that we're going to look at, he talks about God's omnipresence. He's everywhere. We can't uh, evade him. We can't escape from God if we wanted to. So it begins by saying, O Jehovah, <clears throat> thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou searchest out my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Jehovah, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall guide me. The psalmist is telling us that God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is a perfect God. There are no limitations upon God. I'd like to read a few scriptures that talk about <clears throat> this part of God's nature. In Psalm 147 and verse 5 it says, his understanding is infinite. God's understanding has no limits. If it's finite, it's limited. But God's is infinite, not finite, not limited. What about the stars that God created? Well, Psalm 147 and verse 4 says, He counteth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Well, he created them all, and he keeps in touch. He knows them all. In the Malabar, uh, what do you call that, observatory in southwest California, they have a Hales telescope. And with the use of this telescope, they have estimated that there are over 30 billion stars. And I'm sure with a bigger telescope, they could find even more stars. The Bible says that God counteth the number of the stars and he calls them all by their name. Infinite in knowledge. What about the birds and the bees? Psalm 50 and verse 11, and I'm going to quote a few more from Psalms. And you may wonder, well, why don't you quote from the New Testament? Well, let me just say this. That God's nature doesn't change. Malachi 3 and 6. And what was true of God's nature in the Old Testament is still true of his nature today. 
the authority has changed. The Old Covenant authority, we're not under that. We're under the New Testament authority. So we can quote Old Testament scripture when we're talking about the nature of God. Psalm 15, verse 11, I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are in my mind. Now, here's the New Testament scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29 and 30, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father, that is, without your father knowing. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now somebody, evidently, that doesn't have anything better to do, has determined that the average head has 140,000 hairs. I don't know how they arrived at that big figure, but uh, that's supposed to be scientific. God knows how many is on my head, on your head, and everybody else. That seems so trivia. The point is, Jesus is saying, God knows everything about us. There's nothing that escapes his knowledge, his understanding. Well, what about all of the men and their works? Psalm 33, 13 to 15 says, The Lord gazes down upon all mankind and heaven uh, from heaven where he lives. He has made their hearts and closely watches everything they do. Hebrews 4 and 13, there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and laid open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Or Ecclesiastes 12 and 14, the, the last verse in Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every work and judgment into judgment with every hidden thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And there are many other passages that talk about the infinite knowledge of God. Knowledge of men and of events, but even of man's inner self, even of man's heart. He knows the hearts of all men. God said to Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. And do you know what comes into my mind? No, I don't know what comes into your mind, but God does. That's Ezekiel 11 and 5. And Jeremiah, the prophet, said, chapter 17 and verse 10, I, Jehovah, search the mind... I try the heart, even to give every man according to the fruit of his doings. Well, Romans 2.16, Revelation 21, speaks, 20 says the same thing, doesn't it? That God is going to judge us according to our works. He has to know all of our works to be able to do that. And, of course, he does. Romans 2.16 says, In the day that God judges the secrets of men according to my gospel by Jesus Christ. Well, let's move another step further. God knows the future of men and events. He doesn't just know what's happening right now. He cannot just recount what's happened in the past history, but he knows what's going to happen in the future. Isaiah 46 and 10, quoting God, says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. That's God. Let me give you three examples of the evidence of God's foreknowledge. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was mentioned about 200 years in the scriptures before he fulfilled a prophecy that he was to fulfill. Let me turn over to Isaiah 44 in the last verse or two. He's mentioned twice by name. 
that saith, here we go, 28, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith Jehovah to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and so forth. So he's just saying, during the time of Isaiah. Isaiah began his prophesying in about 740 B.C. Well, it was in 539 that Cyrus, as the king of Persia, overtook Babylon and told the people this would be God's pleasure. They could go back to their land, rebuild Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. Cyrus raised him up, named him two centuries beforehand, what he would do. That's foreknowledge. Another example has to do with Josiah, a good king. Remember the division of ten northern tribes pulling away from the two southern tribes in 930 when, um, let me think just a moment. Okay, that's right. 930 B.C. when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam became the king. Well, Jeroboam became the king. I don't know who I said, but Jeroboam is a white name. Uh, he, he changed the things because he was afraid that the children of Israel up in the north would go back to Jerusalem and, you know, rejoin themselves with the southern kingdom. So he had two golden calves, one put at Dan, one put at Bethel. He says, this is the place, this is what you're to worship. Change the object of worship, change the place of the worship, change the priesthood instead of coming from just the tribe of Levi, all the tribes, and change the date of one of their sacrifices. Instead of the seventh month, the 15th day, he changed it to the eighth month and 15th day. Well, God sent one of his prophets up to Jeroboam. And the prophecy was, and I'm reading from 1 Kings 13 and verse 2, that Josiah was going to be raised up and he was going to defile the place where they were then engaged in idolatrous worship. And he cried against, against the altar by the word of Jehovah and said, O altar, altar. He's talking to the altar. Thus saith Jehovah, Behold, a son shall be born unto the house of David. Remember we talked about this morning about all of them being from the house of David. Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he sacrifice the priest of the high places. He's going to take those priests and sacrifice them upon the altars where they were worshiping idolatrously that would burn incense upon thee and men's bones shall they burn upon thee. Now that was in 930 and we find Josiah beginning to reign when he was about eight years old and he was a good king. He brought a number of reforms and one of the reforms was to defile, decimate the place where they were worshiping idols. And the way he did that was to dig up these bones and put them on the altar. But that was 300 years before it happened. And he didn't just say a king. He said Josiah by name would do that. One other example of God's foreknowledge. Now, everybody doesn't agree with this. So if you don't, we'll talk about it. But God, I believe, knew beforehand that man would sin before he created man. Now, the problem is people say, well, if God knew man was going to sin, why would he create him? 
And why would he send Jesus Christ to endure all that suffering and die for sinful man? Well, I can't answer God's questions for him. But I believe I've got some evidence here that shows that God did know. One problem is that, uh, for me, is that God, I, I don't see how he can wipe out something without knowing it. Because he would uh, know that which he has wiped out. How could God exclude men and events from his knowledge without knowing what he had excluded? Now, that's the way I would answer that, but let me give you some scriptures that I think answers it more sufficiently. God knew that man would sin. When we turn to Acts 2.23, we read how Jesus Christ had been delivered up, that is, arrested, turned over to the Jewish authorities, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and that they would take him and crucify him. That was by the foreknowledge of God. That was God, by God's definite plan. He had planned that. When we turn over to 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we notice here that how they had been, or all Christians had been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Knowing that ye were redeemed, not with corruptible things, with silver and gold, from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, even the blood of Christ. Now notice verse 20. Who was foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, but was manifested at the end of the times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, and so forth. So Jesus Christ was foreknown. Well, now another verse that goes with that is Ephesians 3, 10, and 11, where it speaks about the church being in the, a part of the eternal purpose of God. In other words, before God created everything he created, this world, this universe, he had in his mind the church. Well, what is the church? Well, the church is composed of saved people. Not safe people, but people who've been lost and have been saved. So that involves God's knowledge of their need to be saved and of his plan to save them to the coming of Jesus Christ. And so these things suggest to me God's foreknowledge, knowing that man would sin. Uh, Acts 20 and 28 tells us that, uh, well, take heed unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you bishops or overseers, to feed the church of the Lord which he purchased with his own blood. So the church, in God's eternal purpose, was going to be purchased with the shed blood of Jesus by his atoning death on the cross. And so the church was in God's eternal nature, and that involved his knowing that they would be redeemed. So if God did not know the future of men and events, as we think the Bible suggests or teaches, he could not be certain his eternal purpose would be accomplished and his prophecies would be fulfilled. God looks down and he gives a prophecy and he sees a fulfillment at the same time. Now think about this. This is what they call mind-boggling. All the events that have transpired on this earth or 
or and, those taking place, present time, and all the events of the future are before God at this very moment. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Before God created all of this universe, here he was in eternity. eternity. And so he brings about into creation time and space. Well, to God, who has no beginning and no end, it looks like just a little bitty speck down there on eternity. And he can just see it all right there before. He can see when, in the beginning, God created the earth. He can see when uh, God destroyed it, as we said this morning, Second Peter 3 and 10. He can see it all. It's just, just right there as a speck before his eyes. He is eternal. This is the way A.W. Tozer puts it. He says, in one united present glance, that's just one glance, one united present glance, God comprehends all things from everlasting and the flutter of a seraph's wing and a thousand ages hence is seen by him now without moving his eyes. That's how God can know what's going to happen in the future. Why he knows what's happened in the past. Because he sees it all. The day of your birth and the day of your death and every event in between are before God's eyes at this very moment. Well, there's another point we want to notice. We need to be careful to maintain a distinction between God's foreknowledge of men and events and the predetermining of these men and events. Uh, people say, well, if God knows what's going to happen, he's already determined that's the way it's going to be. But the Bible teaches that God has made us and given us a free will. And he respects that free will. I can choose to accept him. I can choose to reject him. But he knows what I'm going to choose. God can foreknow an event without predetermining that event because he respects man's free will. Let me give you three examples. God foreknew Adam's sin. We've talked about that. Since he had already purposed from eternity to save man from his sins, but God didn't use any direct force or any influence upon Adam and Eve. It was of their own free will they chose to disobey God, but he knew it that they would do that. Secondly, Jesus Christ foreknew that Judas Iscariot would betray him. In John 2, 24 and 25, we read how Jesus had this omniscient knowledge of man. But Jesus did not trust himself unto them for that he knew all men. And because he needed not that anyone should bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. One other thing we'd mention, God foreknew the Jews would crucify Jesus, and we've already looked at Acts 2, 23. God has known from eternity who would obey him and who will disobey him, who will obey the gospel, and live 
the rest of his life in obedience to that gospel. He knows those who may obey the gospel and then later in life for some reason or other turn their backs on God. He knows that already. He knows those who may hear the gospel and then reject it and not want to respond to it. But his knowing it doesn't make me make the choices that I make other than just the fact that I want to do what God wants me to do. But it's not because he knows it that he's forcing me to do it. It's a free will action. Jesus said in John 8 and 24, Except ye believe that I am he, ye shall all die in your sin. It's sin that separates us from God. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19 and 10. He's provided a way so that by our free choice to accept him, to do his will, he'll save us. But we have to surrender to him. We have to obey him. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 says that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and becoming the author of eternal salvation unto all them who obey him. And so we have to obey him. And then the grace of God will continue to bless us and bring us into reconciliation with God. But we must repent. We must confess our faith in Jesus. And then we must be buried with him in baptism. For the remission of our sins. Raised to walk in newness of life. A new creation. With his promise to be ever at our side. Until the end of the world. And to take us home with him. As long as we're doing his will. If you're subject to the gospel invitation. Would you come as together we stand and sing.